The pursuit of joy is a universal human endeavor. All of us want a life of happiness and contentment, but the circumstances of life seem to undermine that pursuit at every turn. Philippians is a letter written by a man named Paul from a jail cell in Rome, and though his circumstances are grim, he writes of a joy found not in our where we are, but rather in who we are and who we know. For in Jesus, there is always reason to rejoice. So uh, if you are new here with us, uh, my name is Matt. I'm the pastor here at Tri-City Church, and we're really glad uh, that you've decided to join us this morning. Uh, as Carl said, there's a lot of great things that are, that are happening, especially leading up to the Christmas season. And uh, just so you're aware, uh, starting next week, uh, we are going to take a bit of a break from Philippians. Uh, today we're in Philippians 3 again. That's where we've been working through all fall. But next week, we are going to transition to a Christmas series uh, to lead up to Christmas. So we're going to be looking at uh, the songs through the book of Luke, and it's going to be called Christmas Carols, and so, uh, you know, get excited for that. Uh, Christmas is, is almost upon us, uh, but for this morning, we are going to begin uh, again in Philippians, and so if you have a Bible, now's a great time to take it out. We're going to be in Philippians 3, uh, starting again in verse 12. Um, if you've been with us at all in the book of Philippians, you know that it's, it's a letter written by Paul to a group of Christians, and each week I've, I've really enjoyed it because it's been a reminder for us of the origins of our faith and then also how we are to live it out. Uh, last week, uh, Norm Funk was here from Westside, and he, he talked all about what it means to truly know Jesus. That was our text, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And, and through knowing Jesus... We receive so many good things, all the good things of faith. We receive righteousness, power, hope, uh, the resurrection. All of that comes simply through knowing Jesus. These are amazing gifts that we get. And, and you can tell that it's a good gift if someone wants to open that gift right away. Right? We're coming up to gift-giving season. Uh, if your child receives a gift and you find that gift set off to the side uh, for weeks at a time, generally speaking, that may not have been their very favorite gift. Right? But if they get a gift and they tear it open and right away they want to open the box and they're looking for 18 AAA batteries to put into this thing and make it work, that's usually a good gift. That's kind of what we see here with Paul. He's just finished talking about what it means to know Jesus and then right away he wants to dig into Jesus even more. In fact, he's calling us as, as people who are followers of Jesus. If that's you this morning, he's saying, uh, this isn't something you just know once. You don't know Jesus and then set him aside. You know Jesus, and then you pursue him even more. So that's what we have in our text. That kind of sets it up. And so I'm going to read from it, and then we're going to see what God, what God has for us this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are some uh, always as you enter in the back, and you can grab those and, uh, and use them. It's helpful to see the text, but I'm going to read it aloud, and then we'll put some on the screen as we work through it. So here, starting in verse 12, Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. 
Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for this text. Thank you, God, that in it uh, we, can, we can already tell, Lord, that we are going to know you more. I pray that would be the case this morning. I pray, Lord, that we would uh, have eyes that are open, uh, ears that are open, and Lord, that uh, as we consider the things that you have for us, Lord, that we would know you more, and Lord, that we would know ourselves more. Thank you for this opportunity, Lord. Please use me in spite of my own sin uh, to be of help this morning. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen. Well, uh, we're going to divide this into four parts, uh, four sections in terms of this goal. You'll notice that there is a goal that Paul is, is striving towards. Uh, probably the subheading in your Bible says straining towards a goal. And so we're going to look at what, what is this goal, what does it take to get there, and, uh, and what are the um, potential uh, other, other ways in which we could live our life, other goals that will not lead to what God has for us. Uh, So as I said, four sections, I'm going to call this the four theirs as we strain for a goal, and that's just because every phrase starts with there, so that was my clever way to, okay, forget it. Um, Philippians 3, uh, first couple of verses, the first there is that there is no better goal. Quite simply, we have to start at this place. If we don't first recognize that there is no better goal than the one that uh, Paul is aiming us towards, then we will have no desire to really strain or strive for it. So the first couple of verses, we see this repeated uh, reference to this this thing that Paul wants. Uh, Verse 12 says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Uh, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So what what is this goal that he is talking so much about? Well, uh, in the end of last week, verse 11, uh, Paul talks again about attaining something. He says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And then our verse today at the beginning says, not that I have already obtained this. So it's clear that in part, what Paul is looking for is, is the resurrection. But we also see that he talks about his desire to be perfect. He says, I'm not, I'm not already perfect. The implication is that I want one day to be perfect. And we also see there that the goal that he's talking about, he connects it to the, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, which gives the connotation of, of growing in Christ-likeness, of, of, of hoping to attain one day that heavenly realm. And so we see... Uh, This goal has something to do with the resurrection, something to do with the perfection that he seeks, and even heaven itself. And so I'm going to summarize it this way and say that the ultimate goal of every Christian is to know Christ fully. Because in knowing Christ, we, we get all of those things. The resurrection from the dead, perfection, heaven itself, all of those things are wrapped up in knowing Jesus. And you might say, Matt, I thought that... I thought the beginning of my faith was knowing Jesus. Yeah, yes, it is. But also the end of my faith is knowing Jesus. Yes, that's right. Do you ever feel like sometimes Christians just don't know what to say, so we say Jesus? Like every Sunday school answer is Jesus. Every point from every sermon is Jesus. Like, can we come up with something more interesting, more novel? And the answer is actually no. In fact, no, because the beginning of our faith and the end of our faith is Jesus. Hear me, because Jesus is both personal and and infinite. 
And so we, we come to know Jesus personally as Savior and Lord, and we receive everything that we need for life on this earth and life hereafter, but there's nothing better to move on to. There's nothing greater that then we focus on. In, in heaven, the reason that it's going to be so great is not just because it's a place of free of conflict, free of sin, free of sorrow. All those things are true. But heaven is the perfect place because it's there that we will fully know Jesus. And we see this as something that's pointed to throughout scripture. Here's uh, one verse from 1 Corinthians. Again, Paul, he's talking about the difference between how we know Jesus now and how we will know him uh, in heaven. And he says this, um, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. And so what he's saying is that there is a time when I will know Jesus fully as he knows me, which of course is, is completely. Now that doesn't mean we'll know God exhaustively. We're, we're not God. We can't possibly know God exhaustively, but fully this idea that we will, we will fully apprehend who Jesus is, that we will be in his presence. We will see him face to face. And in that moment, we will truly know the creator of the universe. That's an amazing thing. That's an amazing goal to have. That is what Paul is pointing us towards. But it strikes me that that it, it could be, very well be the case that we know intellectually that Jesus is the best thing in the universe, but we aren't actually captivated by this idea of knowing him fully. I mean, like, like on a day-to-day basis. Do we actually wake up? If you're here this morning, you're a believer, do you, do you have this as kind of one of the things on your heart? Is it one of the things that drives you and shapes your life? My guess is that probably most of us would sway, say, well, Yes, I want to know Jesus, but I'm, I'm not sure that I, that I want it like that. Or like I see Paul in this text. I mean, Paul's crazy. He's always crazy. But he's really excited about knowing Jesus. This is nothing new for the people of God. If you know your, your history, we have this frustrating tendency to receive amazing blessings from God and then turn to look at other things, see what else is out there. In the Old Testament, this happens all the time. Right? God's people are saved miraculously. There's seas parting. There's amazing things happening. And then they, they look and find out what else they can find. They turn to idols. And God, in speaking about his people through the prophet Jeremiah, he, he sums it up perfectly. Not surprisingly, because it's God. He says this. He says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And when you see it there, it makes perfect sense. Of course, God is the source of living water, the source of all hope and meaning for our lives. And yet everything else we turn to runs dry, but we keep turning there. We keep looking for other things in life. We know that there is no other hope. Even if you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I think if you look around, you see what happens when you pursue the things that this world has to offer. It's all around us. Uh, I was reminded of it just the other day. Uh, there's a new uh, documentary on Netflix. I feel like a lot of my illustrations are going to be from Netflix, which I'm not sure what that says. But anyway, this was a documentary. Uh, it's called Jim and Andy. I don't know if you saw it pop up, but uh, it's the story of Jim Carrey portraying Andy Kaufman, a comedian from the 60s and 70s. And uh, really, the film is about the making of uh, the movie, The Man in the Moon, where he portrayed Andy Kaufman because he, he did it in a very method acting style. He really kind of became Andy. And so it's partly the drama that unfolded in the making of the movie, but it's also, because it's 10 years later, it's Jim Carrey kind of reflecting on life. And by the end of the of the documentary, uh, it's very clear that, that Jim is, um, 
that the, the luster of Hollywood has really come off. He, he, he's really not that interested in pursuing his career anymore. In fact, here's a couple of quotes. He says this. He says, right now, he says, um, I don't want anything. That's the craziest thing and the weirdest thing to say, especially in a place like America. I have no ambition. I really and truly don't. That's fascinating to me now. And when the uh, filmmaker sort of pushes him on this and says, you know, Jim, there's a big part of your uh, career. You were really striving for some sort of fame in TV and movies and all that. You know, when, when did this shift? What happened? When did you, you switch to a point of not wanting any of that anymore? And this is what really stuck out. Jim Carrey said, well, it happened somewhere in the middle of absolute confusion, absolute disappointment, coming to the fruition of all of my dreams, standing there with anything anyone had ever dreamed about having, having it, and being unhappy. That was the point where he, he realized that everything he'd been striving for on this earth, I, I don't know if you've been in a place, I, I haven't, where everything on this earth, everything I've hoped for, I've actually, I've actually had, I've attained. I've heard enough stories about people who've been in that place, though, and very often it's one of the moments of greatest despair in their life because everything that they've hoped for, they have, and they're, they're still not satisfied. They're not happy. They've gone to another cistern, and they found that it's ultimately run dry, and there's no hope left for them. So what do we do if we have a tendency to turn to those other things, even though we know intellectually that they, they will run dry, they won't really satisfy us, how do we develop a, a greater desire for the things of God, for Jesus himself? Well, in the pages of scripture, we have this little psalm. It's so helpful. It says simply, Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The Bible seems to say there's, there's an acquired taste for the things of God. There's, there's something about gaining um, a desire, an interest, a really a taste for the majesty and the excellence of Jesus. Even though we know him to be excellent, for us to develop that capacity, that interest, is something that takes effort. Which shouldn't surprise us. Because from a young age, we tend to have a natural taste for those things which aren't good for us. Right? Like our kids, we never have to teach them to want candy. They just, they want it. They want all the things that will ultimately kill them. They want candy. They want sugar. They want fat, salts, all of those things. What do we have to do? We have to teach them. Hey, vegetables will keep you alive. You should, you should eat one. You should eat more of them. And it, it takes time and effort all through their young years into their teen years to the point, hopefully, with the, the miracle of God will be that a 20-something a goes into the supermarket and buys a pepper instead of a bag of Doritos. We say, praise God. They, they've realized that their body actually needs nutritious food, right? But it didn't happen. Here's the thing. It took a lot of effort. And it's the same thing for our spiritual lives. If we are truly going to see that Jesus Christ is the goal, even after we've received him, he is the goal, then we need to develop a taste for the excellence, excellency of Christ. I don't know about you, depending on where you are in your spiritual walk, but I, I can look back and see that that has happened in my life. I remember clearly, uh, if you know my story, I came to Christ in my teens, but there was a real season, probably a decade, where I, I wasn't really pursuing Jesus, certainly not like Paul is saying here. And I remember uh, this was, uh, Don and I had already gotten married, and uh, there was a speaker coming to the church, uh, Willington Church, where we were, uh, John MacArthur. Uh, John MacArthur is a pastor from uh, California, great Bible teacher, and uh, Don said, why don't, why don't we go to that? And I was thinking, I don't know, like, it's Sunday night, we just went to church Sunday morning, so... <laughs> Why would we, 
But I went, because I was new, young husband. Of course, of course I want to go and hear about the Bible. So I went there, and I remember clearly being in the back of the room as people were filing in, and there's this conversation that I overheard uh, by two guys. I didn't know them, but as they were, they were, this just revealed where my heart was. Uh, they were coming in. Here's what the conversation, how it happened. Uh, they said, uh, hey, how's it going? Oh, man, it's going really good. Are you excited about tonight? Oh, man, I'm so stoked about tonight. Fired up to hear John speak. Yeah, me too. It's going to be great. Who are you here with? Just some guys from Bible study. Man, right on. Well, I hope you really enjoy it. Yeah, you too, man. I don't know why they're from California. That's just the voice that I did. But, but I remember hearing that, and I remember thinking, these guys are so lame. What are you so excited about? This is ridiculous. I just remember being like, this is dumb. So I did enjoy the evening, but here's the uh, fascinating thing to me. Ten years later, I had the opportunity to go down to a conference at John MacArthur's church. It's called the Shepherd's Conference, a conference for pastors. And when I found out that I was going, I was so excited. I was like, Don, I get to go down to the Shepherd's Conference and hear John MacArthur. It's going to be amazing. So what happened in 10 years that I would go from just having no interest in that to being so excited to travel and fly down there, not even go to a beach while I was in California, just to hear him speak and others speak. What happened is that I, I developed a taste for the excellencies of God. And the way that happened was through the prompting of the Holy Spirit. It's always by the grace of God, but also effort on my part that I actually started reading my Bible, that I was interested in what God had to say, that I was listening to theology, that I was, that I was taking part in the life of the church. And so what we see here is that there is a goal that is greater than any other goal. Even after we've come to Christ, Jesus himself is the goal that we should have. But if we don't see his value, if we aren't putting energy and effort into into truly developing a taste for Christ, then we will never see the purpose. What Paul is going to say next will have no meaning because he's going to talk about striving and pressing onward. And we will say, I'm not really sure it's worth it. But we will when we come to see that Jesus, there's no greater value. And when we put in the time and effort to really delve into the things of God. So the first thing, that was just the first thing. There is no greater goal. But the second thing is there is no time to slack off. There's no time to slack off. We see that with with Paul. It's not a time to put your feet up. Just because you come to Christ doesn't mean now you just rest forever. You have a sense of rest. There are certain things you don't need to strive for, but you still strive. And if you look at what he says, he says, the one thing I do, look at the focus. There's one thing. One thing I do, verse 13, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way. Now notice Paul says, I forget what lies behind. What what does he mean by that? He doesn't mean I forget everything in the past because we just saw in verse 12, he said, Christ Jesus has made me his own. So he remembers that. He remembers the time where he came to faith. That was the work of Jesus. That happened in the past. So it's not that we forget everything that's in the past. What we forget are those things which will hinder our spiritual growth. We need to develop a selective amnesia for that which has already been taken care of at the cross. Because if if you're like, I think most people, there are things in the past that that when you consider them, uh, they they bring you to a place where, where you're just stagnant. There are things that have most likely been said to you, hurtful things, uh, maybe things that have been done to you, s- sinful things, things that you are even now, in the quiet times of your life, even maybe all the time, you're, you're drawn back there, and, and you're reliving them, 
You're still dealing with the fallout of those, of those things that happen. And listen, Paul isn't saying just gloss over that. He's not just saying, oh, just pretend that didn't happen. But what he's saying is that there is a real way in which you can come to a place of peace and healing and it has everything to do with what Christ has done for you. The love that he's shown you, the sacrificial love that God would send his only son so that you might have peace with God. As we come to the foot of the cross, in all of those things that, that weigh down our soul, we, we can begin to heal and we come, can come to a place of wholeness. We can actually develop the capacity to forgive and to move past uh, cycles of bitterness and anger. And this isn't a quick thing. Uh, if you're here this morning and you know that there's, just, there's some of those things that are still going on in your life, I'd really encourage you, take the time. Take the time to get into the word of God, to know the truths of the gospel. Get biblical counseling. Many of these things, if they've happened to us for years, they take years to work through, and that's okay. Come talk to me. If, if you need biblical counseling, talk to your community group leader. Talk to people in your life who really know the truths of the gospel. And in that, what you, what you come to, of course, we don't forget it completely, but we're able to move past it. And what Paul is saying is that until we come to a place where we're able to move past those hurts from the past, we will never truly move forward. If we're living in the past, then we're missing out for what God has for us in the future. And it's not just negative things. There can be some really positive things, some great moments, some spiritual experiences that we've had, and they were fantastic, but they are in the past. And we find ourselves always wanting to be back there and thinking, man, if it was just like that, if Tri-City was just that kind of church, man, I remember my pastor back then, he was so great. This guy, I don't know, but... The point is, if we're always looking back, then we will miss out for what God has for us. So Paul says, be mature about this. If you truly know the gospel, then look for the healing that comes from it and then move forward because there is a goal and it's in the future and it's truly knowing Christ. This is a sign of maturity and it's no time to take it easy. In all of this, there requires a great amount of effort and it's not effort unto salvation, Norm last week said very succinctly, work never leads to salvation, but salvation always leads to work. So we're not working unto salvation, but we are still striving for something. And amazingly, even after we've received Christ through faith, we still want more of him, which seems kind of odd, except that this happens again in the world around us. There are Olympians that have, that have earned gold medals, and yet the very next day, their souls training again for the next Olympics. I looked it up. I did some research this week. Uh, Larissa Latyanina, she is the second most decorated gymnast in all of history. She's from the Soviet Union. She won 18 gold medals and 14 world championships in her career. But listen, she won, she won gold medals in 1956, 1960, and 1964. That means even after achieving the, very, the top thing that she could get, the gold medal she'd been striving for, she went back to it again the next year. She trained again and again. And I don't know if you know gymnastics training. It's not easy. Uh, Dawn was a, a gymnast all through her teen years. And she would tell me, like, six hours a day after school, conditioning, training, doing the thing with the ribbon. Is that gymnastics? It's, <laughs> it's hard work. So why would you do this? Because she wanted to continue to pursue excellence. Even though she had it, she wanted more of it. And that's the Christian life. That's what Paul is calling us to that we can keep pursuing that which we already have. Look at verse 16 and 17. He says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Whatever spiritual growth God has done in us, we, we grab hold of that. But brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to this example. 
Look at Paul. He's writing this from prison. If there's ever someone, like if you went to visit him, you, you would probably say, Paul, man, just take it easy. All right? I mean, you're in prison for the gospel. You probably, this is kind of like forced retirement. You could probably just chill. But he doesn't chill. He never chills. He's writing letters. He's sharing the gospel with, you know, people. He's praying for everyone. He is still striving for the goal, even at that point of his life, when he could probably take it easy. He's saying it's the same for us. And so that's the question that this text is leading us to ask. Are, are you running like this in your spiritual life? Do you find yourself in situations that you're, you're there because you felt the leading of the Spirit of God or because you wanted to care for someone or, or be obedient to God and you feel like you're just drained, you're exhausted? You feel like, Lord, is this how it's supposed to be? Am I supposed to be this, this tired? I've overextended myself again. This person needed help. I saw an opportunity to give financially and now I'm not sure how things are, are going to meet. Is this the Christian life? And the answer is yes. The answer is that we are to be exhausted people. Not continually, not every day redlining it, but a, a rhythm, a pattern of overextending ourselves to show the love of God to others and to pursue purity in our life. Paul says this is what maturity looks like. There's no time to slack off. There's, there's too much work to be done in our own lives and the lives of those around us. And this is not just for one time in life. It's going to look different for each one of us. God is calling us to different things. We're not all called to the same thing in terms of how we do this and how we serve, but it is for all seasons of life. For those of us here who are young, you have, you have time and energy. If you're a young family, you don't have any time and you have some energy, but you're still young. And this is for you. This is a moment, if, especially if you're young, if you're a teen or a young adult, now's the time for you to decide what you're going to pour your life into. And how you're going to pursue Jesus. And how, if you're part of Tri-City Church, how you can be part of the church here. But it's not just for the young. It's for those in their twilight years as well. I'm so glad that God has brought together a mix of people here. For those in those stages of life where, where the world will tell you, now is your time to sit back. Now is your time to just enjoy the life that you've earned. The Bible says something different. Now look, you can, I mean, go on a cruise. That's great. Go see the things of God. Make sure it's, you know, walking the Holy Lands. But go somewhere. Enjoy it. But what I don't want you to forget is that we need you here as well. And the Bible says really clearly that older men and older women are to pour into those in the earlier stages of life. And that's because, look, you've made mistakes that we haven't even thought of yet. Right? <laughs> like, you know what's coming. So we need you. We need you to invest fully, to still extend yourself, not to take your foot off the gas. For each and every one of us, there is growth for us as individuals and as a church as we live the life that Paul is laying out for us here. So there is no time to slack off. There's too much work to be done in our own lives and in our community. That was the second thing. Third thing, there are no harmless idols. And here we have, uh, Paul kind of inserts a cautionary tale. A couple of verses that are a point of contrast to the, point of, uh, the life of maturity that he's talking about. And so this is verses 18 and 19. And he says uh, this. He says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now, this isn't um, a theoretical, these are real people. These are people that he, he knew as, that were part of the Philippian church. And he's, he's talking about them. The Philippians would have known these people. He's saying they were, they were Christians, who they claimed to be Christians. They said they followed Christ, and yet now, instead of living in light of the cross, they're living in opposition to it. So how did that happen? 
there are two, two things, at least two, that Paul mentions that explain this wayward condition of their heart and soul and, and their lives. The first is this. They serve uh, appetites of the flesh. We, say, we see there, he says, their God is their belly. That's not just referring to food. It's referring to the pleasures of the flesh, to all the, the things that this world has to offer. Certainly food, sex, uh, leisure, comfort, drugs, alcohol, all those things that would make us feel good on this earth. That's what people are, are, are pointing to that or living for that. And on that list, there are some things that are clearly prohibited, drunkenness, drugs, clearly prohibited, but there are many things that are actually the gift of God. We have, we have taste buds. And the reason God put them there is simply that we would enjoy good food. He wired our bodies that way. He also wired our bodies to not just procreate, but to enjoy the process in the context of marriage. He did that as a gift for us. We are to enjoy those things that God has given us. But look, they're not just enjoying them, they're worshiping them. They have made that the focus of their lives. They have all their hope and their energy is pointed at these gifts that God has made. That's the essence of idolatry. That we replace God with something that God has made and we look to it for our hope and, and focus. And the result of that is that our, the direction of our life turns fully away from God and we embrace sin. That's the second thing that we see. They glory in their sin. It says there, they, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. This is a, a clear indication of a condemned heart. See, it's one thing to struggle with sin. We all struggle with some sin in our life. Sometimes though, I'll meet with someone and they'll be very concerned about their struggle and say, I'm worried about my salvation. I'm not sure, like I'm, I'm still struggling with this sin. And what I usually say, I mean, it's, we need to be struggling with our sin. We want to overcome sin. We want to put it to death. But the very fact that you're struggling is usually a good sign. It's usually an indication that the Spirit of God is at work with you. The, the time to be really concerned is when you're at peace with your sin. Is when you do things you know uh, are contrary to what God says, and yet you don't feel bad about it at all. And even more so, these people are not just at peace with their sin, they're celebrating their sin. That they're, they're telling people about the sinful things that they're doing. They're proud of them. This is the guy who tells stories about his sexual exploits in the locker room. He's proud of it. This is the business person who boasts about the ways in which they've learned to cheat their clients and, and they've maximized their profit. This is the young person who ridicules someone on social media, just, just tears them down, and then the next day at school just brags about it, thinks it's great. Look, this behavior is, is really not surprising. If your mind is set on earthly things, if the grave is the farthest point on the horizon that you see for your life, then that will shape the way that you live. You will try to get as much enjoyment, as, much, um, as many things as you can get out of life. You want it for yourself. It will shape the way that you live, that you look to those things and you say, that's what I need. I want this and this. I'm going to get as much of it as I can, as much money as I can, because this is all there is. There's nothing left. Look at Paul's response to all of this. I mean, Paul's a, he's a fiery guy. You'd think he would be angry. He would tell them to, to reject them. He doesn't. He doesn't have any sort of condescension or anger. His, his heart breaks for these people. He says, I'm writing to you this with, with tears. He's weeping at, at the thought that there are people that once said they knew Jesus and now have turned away. He weeps for all those who look to other things and try to find hope when in fact it will not bring hope. It will not bring satisfaction. Their blindness in sin is a point of, 
of grief for Paul. And it should be for us as well. Because there's a greater hope. There is, in fact, something that we can point everyone to, including ourselves, reminding ourselves there is a greater hope which will always satisfy. And that's our fourth thing. There is no greater hope than that of Jesus. Paul reminds them this cautionary tale is then contrasted again, kind of a bookend to this part that says, we, we are not like those who hope in dry cisterns. He says this in verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Notice his hope is not ethereal. It's not mystical. It's not even purely spiritual. The hope of heaven is one where the perfectly spiritual and the perfectly physical come together. He says your lowly body, the one right now that is kind of uncomfortable, because we got the cheap plastic chairs instead of the nice comfy ones. That body, the body that is kind of hungry, wondering when we're going to get to go and eat out in the lobby. The body that was up last night because you have aches and pains. The body that needs to take Tylenol and we need to medicate ourselves because of the degenerative state of our physical self. The body that needs to go for dialysis, that needs to go to the doctor, that needs glasses, that has hair sprouting out of weird places. That body... That body that is just decomposing all of our lives, that body will one day be transformed into a magnificent, glorious body like that of Christ. I mean, just imagine what that'll be like. Imagine every day waking up and you feel the best you've ever felt. Imagine heaven being able to jump higher than a building or I don't know what you can do. You can do cool stuff with your body. It's going to be fantastic. You will never have to worry about straining a muscle. You will never have to worry about the sickness that might come. It will be miraculous and glorious. But listen, it will also be the perfect vehicle for the spirit of God within us. It will be the perfect way to enjoy the kingdom of heaven. And most importantly, it will be the perfect means by which to truly know Jesus fully. It's only in the point of heaven when we have been fully sanctified, spiritually made pure by the work of Christ on the cross, and then miraculously given this new body, this glorified body, that is the point where we will attain our goal. What Paul is looking forward to, saying that's where I want to be, staring into the face of Jesus. Listen to these words from 1 Peter. This is talking about all the blessings of God in Christ. It says, Blessed be the Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable. I love these words. Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That is the hope we have. If you know Jesus this morning, you, you have salvation in a sense, but you don't have it fully. That's not going to happen till heaven. And Paul is saying, that's where I have my eyes. That's where I have my hope. See, if the grave is your farthest point on the horizon, that's going to shape your life. But if you look to the horizon and there is no end, it just goes on into eternity, that will also shape your life. It'll shape the way that you, you live. It'll shape the things that you hope for, that you focus on, where you put your time and energy. All of that will be a pursuit of that one thing which has already been promised to you. And you will find in yourself a, a growing taste for the excellencies of Christ. Just like as a child, you have to learn that there are certain things that actually nourish the body. Here we learn that there are certain things, one thing that truly nourishes our soul, and that's Christ. And that's what Paul is pointing us to. 
Now, as a final point of application, I think there are two questions that come out of this text for us as individuals and as the church. Firstly, where are you tempted to set your minds on earthly things? Seems clear in this text that's one of the, the dangers, one of the potential dangers for the things in this world. It's different for all of us. Where are you tempted? What, what, do, you, what do you watch? What do you listen to? What do you hope in? What do you put time into? That there's a danger that you, your mind will be set firmly on things of this earth rather than on God. That the end point for that activity is actually not a worship of God, but a worship of that thing. I think that's a good question to think about this week. Secondly, where are you taking it easy uh, when you should be running? Are there opportunities in your life where, where God is maybe calling you to something and you haven't yet taken advantage of it yet because you're, you're not sure about it? You're not sure you want to go all out? Where is it? What might happen if indeed you said as an individual, as a family, no, actually this, this thing I think God is calling us to, let's do that. Let's see what happens if we pursue Christ in that way. Now, this isn't just true for us as individuals. As a church, uh, we are called uh, all the time to be running in terms of spiritual things, but in certain seasons, there is an extra special time, and we're coming up to that. We're coming up to Christmas. As you may have heard, we're going to do three Christmas Eve services, and the reason we're doing that is because we want to have every opportunity for everyone we invite to come and have a place. We want to make sure our doors are open wide. We want to welcome them, be the best hosts, welcome them warmly, and that is going to require a lot of effort on our part as a church. That there are extra things that are going to need to be done. For one thing, we're going to need to invite people. So in a couple of weeks, we're going to have invitations that are going to look like that, postcards. And uh, just like we did for launch, we're going to put them into bundles. There's about a thousand of them that we're printing out. We want to go and we need people to, to invite the whole neighborhood. Uh, we need to put them in mailboxes, let people know that, hey, we're gathering here. I mean, our whole community is celebrating at Christmas and they're celebrating good things, but not the greatest thing. So we have an opportunity to say, hey, this is a time to celebrate. Absolutely. Come on out. We are going to have a great time. It's going to be carols. It's going to be singing. There's going to be a message of joy. We want you to be there. In our own lives, there are people that we know who don't yet know the message, the true message of Christmas. And so again there, there's going to be opportunity for us to work, maybe step out courageously, boldly, and invite people. Because we're doing three services, we have extra serve team spots that need to be filled especially in the welcome team, especially on kids. We want to have uh, preschool and nursery so that if there's someone brand new coming in and uh, they can sit down, if they have a toddler, they're not going to be able to hear anything. And so we want to provide that for them. We need people to help there. We need help with setup. So look, here's my, my action item for you this morning. Uh, if you're a guest here, this isn't for you. We're glad you're here. We just hope that you're going to come back Sunday after Sunday and again on Christmas Eve. That would be fantastic. But if you're part of Tri-City Church, and you maybe just haven't quite gotten on a serve team yet, um, I'd love it if you went to the Connect Desk. There's a, there's a special sheet there. And those three areas in particular, just look for one. You say, yeah, I, I can be there. I can help. I would love to make that happen. Um, this, is, this is what it means, in part, for us to, to strive for this goal. Why? Because as we continue to work hard, to, to look for areas to, to share the good news, Areas where it's going to require of ourselves, we're not only going to tell more people about Jesus, we're going to know him more in the process. We're going to come together as, as a church body. And so that, I think, in part, for us specifically, is what I see Paul calling us to, but there are so many other points of application that I trust the Spirit of God is going to lay on our hearts. Okay? So let's pray and uh, look forward to Christmas. Uh, Lord God, I am excited for this coming season. I'm thankful for this text, Lord. I, I think it's, it's the right text for the right time. 
Because God, there's so many of us here, we know, we know you, Jesus, and yet we, we don't really have a desire to know you fully. And that's because there's just so many other things going on in our life. And, uh, and Lord, I just pray that this would be a time in our lives where we, we grow in our taste for you, Jesus, where we, we hunger more to know you fully. And I pray, Lord, that as a church, you would use us. God, you've been so gracious to us to bring people here. I thank you for everyone that's here this morning. I pray, Lord, that we would have a desire to see this room filled time and time again so that more and more people would have a greater hope. Lord, that they wouldn't be, they wouldn't have their end here on this earth, but they would go on into eternity, knowing you fully with a joy that will not be stopped. And so I pray, Lord, you'd help us uh, to have that, um, that desire as well that we would, in a real sense, weep for those around us who don't know you. Lord, help us to have the heart that you have for others. And help us also, the Lord, to see what you're calling us to as a church and as individuals. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.